Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1, John 1, 43 through 51. Here's kind of a funny story. Um, Jessica, who's going to be the translator for this sermon in the Chinese church, um, Anna told me this morning, she said, that's a smart girl, and I know it is because she's translated for me before, and she wants to get it right. And she even asked me, she did. She asked at least, but it was, it was a demand behind the ask, can you have your transcript of the sermon for me by 8 o'clock Friday night so I could spend the weekend getting ready? And can you believe I, I threw her off her pins from the very start? I, I said uh, the text is Luke 1, 43 through 51. And she had to work through that from the very start. She finally said, I think you meant John. And I'm like, yes, I did. But... Um, so you can pray for me, and it's going to be great there, but we're not in Luke 1 today. We're in John 1, 43 through 51. And uh, here is what God's Word says. There I was in, not, not in Luke, but in 1 John still. John 1, 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, and when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending or ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence. Help us by that supernatural power to not just understand intellectually, although we need that and, and must have that, but we pray for us to have spiritual eyes that are open and receptive to what you would teach us through your word today as we interact with your text. In Jesus' name, amen. I've said this before. I'll keep saying it because we need to hear it and understand this about the Bible. The Bible is unique. The Bible is unique. The Bible is a one-of-a-kind book because the Bible is God's Word. It's breathed out by Him. The Bible is one book comprised of 66 chapters. Uh, we talked about this yesterday morning. You have a pastor who says, well, Jesus said this, and I know Paul said this, and, and he kind of puts 
part of Scripture against the other part of Scripture. Uh, that's, a, that's a pastor you should stop listening to and being in, in the presence of. Uh, the Bible is God's word. All of it is. And it's breathed out by God. Um, there are human authors, instruments God used in writing his word. And the human author of our text today, John, wrote why he wrote these words with his personality. But, but understand, this is God's words as the ultimate author. Why did John write the book? It's in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We're at the end of this book, this chapter of this book in the Bible. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wanted you to have spiritual life. And he knew the only way to have spiritual life is to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, who Jesus was, why he came, all the ramifications. So here at the beginning of this book, that's the end. That's what he had in mind as he's writing this book. Here at the beginning of the book, John is establishing who Jesus is. We had that little preamble at the start, those first, uh, what are they, the first 18 verses, then the narrative starts, and now it's starting to pick up some steam. Establishing who Jesus is. And by seeing Jesus this morning, by considering how people responded to him, we will be strengthened in our own belief in Jesus as the Son of God. Four points this morning. First one, Jesus is the leader. And that's part one. Jesus is the leader, part one. Verse 43. Second point, the responses to Jesus' leadership. Those are in verses 44 through 46. Then we have Jesus is the leader, part two. That's verses 47 through 49. And finally, what's in store for those who respond positively to Jesus' leadership, verses 50 and 51. It's a very exciting, good text. And so I'm hoping that as we prayed, we'll glean from it. We'll be just that much stronger spiritually, that much more whatever God wants us to be spiritually. So listen up. First part, Jesus is the leader. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Some of us have the notion maybe that we are the leader and Jesus' purpose in our lives is just to kind of react to our decisions, kind of nudge us back on track and correct us, but we think we are the boss. We're the captain of our fate, so to speak. And we make our decisions or we think that world leaders make the decisions and we know we're not in control and Somebody in some room somewhere is making these things or somebody's making a financial decision that will crash this and it'll have a domino effect or whatever. But we don't acknowledge who's the leader. Right from the start, Jesus is the one deciding and people are responding to his leadership. You might think that Jesus purposely takes a back seat and merely responds to human decisions. But that's wrong. Jesus does not, uh, in any of these, sit back and let events happen to him. I don't know if 
this was a phrase where you were, but boy, back in the Midwest, in the farm country, they'd say, take the bull by the horns. Jesus takes the bull by the horns and wrestles that thing down. Jesus decides, and we see it right from the start. He decided to go to Galilee. Later on, he's the one who decided against the, the wisdom of his disciples to go to Jerusalem three years later when it was time to die. He decided. Also here we see him finding Philip. Elsewhere he's described as the one who came to seek and to save those which were lost. Jesus never said, I'm going to throw it up against the wall and see what sticks. I'll die on the cross. I'll make a universal uh, appeal to everybody and we'll just see who comes. And boy, I sure hope it's a lot of people. Didn't say that. Jesus came deliberately, purposely to seek, to save that which is lost. And so right here, even this word from the start, he decided. He decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. He said to Philip, follow me. Think about what's lost and what's found, and Jesus being the seeker. Words are used like this in other Gospels. Matthew 18, 12 through 14, talks about the 99 sheep, the one lost. The shepherd deliberately leaves those 99 sheep where they were safe and deliberately goes out to seek the one lost one. The prodigal son comes back, uh, and, and the father's out there, uh, trying to talk to the older brother, and, and the older brother's mad about it. And here's what, here's what in that parable uh, the father said. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Wait a minute, I thought he came back on his own. He was lost, but he was found. And that's clear. Jesus is active. Acknowledge it, don't acknowledge it, but it's the truth. Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the one. He calls to Philip here. He says, follow me. He called out in other places to people, and they obeyed his voice. Think of him uh, with Lazarus out in the physical grave, standing outside of that grave, saying, Lazarus, come forth. Say, well, Lazarus had to come forth, right? Lazarus, what, was, it, was Lazarus not going to come forth? out of that grave when Jesus called him and brought him back to life? Did Jesus say, well, Lazarus, come forth. One, two, three, four. Okay, he didn't come. Too bad it didn't work out that time. No, Jesus came. He made the call, knowing Lazarus would come forth when he raised him from the dead. And Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the active ingredient in your spiritual life when you stop to think about it. So, Jesus being the leader, Jesus being in control of every event, what are some common responses that we see to Jesus' leadership? We see them in this text. We see them in our world. We've done them ourselves. Uh, what are some common responses? Not everyone is encapsulated in this passage, but some very common responses can be found here. Verses 44 through 46. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said to him, come and see. First response, we see to Jesus' leadership and Jesus' call in our lives. People who have been saved from their life of sin. People who've been called out uh, from despair and hopelessness. People who've felt like they're just a nobody, a who down in Whoville, just a nothing. And then they get saved by God. And they realize who Jesus is. And the natural response is to tell somebody. That's the natural response. Immediately, Philip goes to Nathaniel. He found his friend Nathaniel and said, we found Jesus. Earlier in this passage, last week's sermon, it was a brother who found a brother. Thinking today and on this day, and there's a percentage of us who really God did use that godly mom to read us the Bible stories, and, and, and maybe it was somebody else who uh, walked us uh, through. Maybe it was a combination of that and, and a godly father and some a church Sunday school teacher or a co-worker and all that. But in so many cases, that's what Christian moms do. If they're really Christians, they tell their kids about Jesus. They leave the results to God. They even leave the timing to God on all of those things. But it happens. The response to Jesus' leadership and his call in our lives and his saving is that since it is life-altering news, since it does change the whole way we look at the world, it shifts everything, um, what do we tell people? Of course. Uh, it's why we don't have so many exhortations that you have to you know, if you have to whip somebody and get them into shape to go, you go out and tell, you go out and tell, you go out and tell, that's maybe the wrong approach. Um, maybe we just need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives, and then it just will come naturally. Here Philip went, told Nathaniel, his friend, and isn't it nice when your friends become friends? You watch a gathering, and, and uh, oh, there's people, there's people that I... You know, we, we loved and knew from various places in our past, and you guys have this, various churches you've been in or jobs, and you kind of, you wish these people could meet these people because you know they would get along, and it would be great to just watch them interact with each other. Uh, it's great when your friends become friends. Jesus is that friend that sticks closer than a brother, and Philip couldn't just sit on it. He had to go to Nathaniel and say, uh, these words, he says, we've found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He named him. Named him. Uh, the continuity there. Uh, this is Luke, or I'm sorry, this is John tying in Old Testament with New Testament. Moses and the prophets to Jesus. Uh, we see that here. And he goes and he tells his friend. Sometimes when people first hear about Jesus, there is an initial response of disrespecting Jesus. Uh, maybe our country and our world has been so oversaturated uh, with Jesus this, Jesus that, people don't get excited about Jesus and who he is. 
In this case, what Nathaniel said was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, you might think that he was saying that out of snobbishness for his region. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was saying uh, it's not like a, a, a Mets fan begrudgingly saying, well, there is a guy named Aaron Judge who does hit some home runs, and I guess I grudgingly say he's, he's pretty good. It's not rivalry that way. Nathaniel was from the same region. He was kind of down on his own region, down on his own. And from that same geographical area, can anything good come out of this place is what he was saying. Not can anything good come out of there because only good things are here. He had a worldview where um, he was felt insignificant, felt like his region of the country was insignificant. He was flyover country. He was, he was um, uh, the, the, big, the big stars and the big movements and the big events came from Jerusalem or maybe from Rome. Uh, that's where the action was. And these little sleepy small towns, can anything good come out of there? Surely the Messiah can't be from there. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Modern version of that, a way that we can disrespect Jesus, the way that we can look down on, on Jesus and belittle him. Can anything good just come out of the old message from the Bible we've been talking about all this time? Uh, if there is a Messiah, shouldn't we jazz it up a little bit? Shouldn't we do things, uh, add to Jesus' image so people won't be so quick to turn their noses up at him? We'll give them the gospel eventually, but we've got to get them in with this or with that. And as if, as if we don't have the words of life just in the walk with Jesus that we have. Uh, what we're talking about is the very God, a very God. We're talking about the creator of the universe. And we have these words, why do we water that down? Or why are we tempted? Why am I tempted to water that down to, to, to razzle-dazzle things up? And hopefully then they'll come and see Jesus. People do look down. People that don't know Jesus uh, speak, and sometimes they even sound so intellectual, and they sound like the smart ones in the world, the movers and shakers. And yet, what we have is that Jesus of Nazareth, that carpenter's son, that one born in a manger, that one who is God, fully God, fully man. And it seems like the best thing for us, for you to do in your life as you live, and don't don't try and, and uh, make false promises. You're not a salesman trying to, to get your pitch out there. Uh, your answer is the same as Philip's answer. Come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What about this Jesus? Come and see. All see. Later on, the woman at the well will say the same thing a couple chapters from now. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And so... What we have is Jesus Christ, the leader, the one who's come into earth to seek and save those who were lost, came to earth with a specific mission to, um, to be tempted as we are yet without sin, to learn obedience, as, as the phrase goes in Hebrews, to 
proclaim that there is a God in heaven, that there is a way to be right with God in heaven, to say things that we will get to later on, such as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. To say all those things, to go to the cross deliberately. He wasn't, we call it passive obedience uh, in a theological phrase, but boy, Jesus uh, didn't have to go to that cross. And so, we see Jesus, first of all, the decision maker, the one who controls the narrative, the one who does and doesn't just react to us. And we see the way people responded to him, and they came. And look at what Nathaniel eventually did. And that's in our third point, Jesus is the leader, part two. This is in verses 47 through 49. So here's a skeptic. Skeptic saying, can anything good come out of this place? Yet he comes because Philip says, just come to Jesus and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. The old King James says no guile, no deceit, no guile. Uh, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And then Nathanael answered him in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. First thought for us from this text. Jesus knows his people even before they actually become his people in practice. Knew something of Nathanael's character says he saw him sitting under the fig tree. And here's Nathaniel moving toward him, not just in space and, and geographical, but Nathaniel was also moving toward him spiritually. He had initially rejected because he didn't think such a thing was possible. He's coming to see, and he's moving toward Jesus, and Jesus knows exactly how it's going to end up. What did he mean when he said, a man in whom is no deceit? Was there no deceit in him? Well, ask any person, or I'll ask you about any person who says, I've never told a lie. Listen, listen to a biography, and a, uh, the girl's writing about herself, and she was young, and she got caught stealing and lying about it. And she said, since then, I've never stolen anything, and I've never told a lie ever since then, several years later. <laughs> and I'm thinking, uh, I think uh, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt that she probably just doesn't understand uh, she's talking in some kinds of terms because otherwise you just told a lie when you say I've never lied. Um, did Jesus, what, was he, what did he mean then? First of all, he didn't say a man in whom is no sin. There was one man there in that conversation without sin, but there, it sure wasn't Nathaniel. He said a man in whom is no guile. Let's understand that. Let's take a look and see. Um, this is Jesus being connected to God's Old Testament people, Israel, especially with their leader, Jacob. Understand this. Uh, uh, we're going to get to this part. John's already said he came to his own. His own received him not. As many as received him to them gave you power. He started out with his people, Israel. Now, who was the head of those people? You could say Abraham, yeah. But the nation of Israel, who was their head? Israel. What was his name before he was Israel? 
is Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Well, literally, heel holder. He was a twin, and he was grabbing his brother's heel. Uh, supplanter is another way. And he was named Jacob as, as a kind of a sneak, kind of a guileful man. Uh, and we see in his deals with Esau, he snookered him out of uh, the birthright, stole the blessing, uh, put the fur on his arms and because uh, Esau was a hairy man, deceived his blind father and had to get out of there. He was that kind of a sneaky, guileful man. That's the one who was the head of the nation of Israel. There was a momentous occasion when Jacob has got his wives and his kids and his flocks and people and they're headed back and he's getting ready to meet Esau who he'd been so guileful, deceitful with. And they wrestled all night and at that night his name was changed and he was now no longer the name carried around with him as a man of guile. Jesus didn't say, here comes a man without sin when Nathaniel came. But he said, here's one of these religious people, one of these church people. Here's one of these Israelites that's come. And they've been transferred, and, and they're, they're the, the religious ones. Um, he came to his own. His own received him not. But he's coming, and he's starting out with people like Nathaniel. Nathaniel was a prototype Israelite in whom is no guile. Somebody said, if Nathaniel had guile, like he would do what we do. Somebody goes, oh, you're a good guy. And if we're sneaky, we, we uh, well, no, I'm not, because one time I, we, we, we throw some false uh, modesty out there. We throw a little bit of virtue signaling. We still don't talk about what we really are, but we take that. Nathaniel didn't say that. He just accepted it. He wasn't, by, by that standards, he was obviously a pretty good guy. Pretty good guys, pretty good women, pretty good people need Jesus. They're on their way to hell without Jesus. And you can sin uh, desperately by being righteous in your own eyes and thinking your righteousness will take you to heaven. Jesus on the cross for your sins and you say you know what that's good for some people but I think I'm going to go the route of trusting myself because I'm so much better than so many people and that's like spitting on Jesus while he's hanging on the cross for your self-righteous sins I love to hear stories of athletes or anybody who's a Christian in the public eye nowadays you know, they used to just say, I'd like to thank God, and, and we'd go, that's just a cliche. Well, nowadays, if they say, I'd like to thank Jesus Christ for being my Lord and Savior, when they get a microphone, <laughs> you go, that's pretty bold. They're about ready to get uh, their jerseys uh, canceled and all of those things. Um, there's a baseball player, played for the Arizona Diamondbacks, and he was a good guy, and they kept inviting him to baseball chapel, and he thought, I'm glad people are going to that baseball chapel and that chapel and they're hearing something that's helping change their lives, it's moderating them. But he had no idea, no, no desire to go because he was a pretty good guy. I don't need that religion. One day he went and he heard that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
And he realized that even as a self-righteous, as a, as a good guy, always known as a good guy, he needed Jesus. And that's part of his Christian testimony now. And now he plays for the Cardinals. So God even did him a favor by moving him from the Diamondbacks to the Cardinals. That would be Paul Goldschmidt. But um, he speaks at Christian Family Day. And his, his, day, his testimony isn't, oh, I, I was on drugs and I was a womanizer and I was this and I was that and God saved me out of that. That's a good testimony if, it's a, if that's your testimony. Talk about how God saved you from those things. But his testimony is this. God saved me from my self-righteousness because I was going to hell fast and didn't even know. This is the kind of man Nathaniel was. True Israelite, no guile, prototype of all of them. In other words, church people need Jesus just like non-church people need Jesus. We need Jesus. What did Jesus mean when he said he saw him under the fig tree? This is, uh, this is an interesting thing, and you could spend a lot of hours trying to read all the various interpretations of, of under the fig tree. The best thing to do is just to say, I'll take the words, and I won't try to overthink it. I'll just accept that. Uh, maybe in heaven, after a, a few billion years, uh, the question might occur to me, and, and I'll get it answered, or maybe I won't even care at that point. But Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Um, I would say probably he was literally under a fig tree. And Jesus, the Son of God, knew it. How? However it is that God knows things. That's how God knew it and Jesus knew it. But what's interesting is to look at the, at the Old Testament teaching of fig trees. And, and a couple of verses came up, and, and I think you'll find this interesting. One is Hosea 9.10 where God's talking about saving his people. And he said this, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I found your fathers. The other one is Zechariah 3.10 that comes to mind. In that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. But you think about that first one, that Hosea one, about God being in charge, God finding his people. And he says, I found grapes in the wilderness. Uh, it's the desert, and you're walking through, and it's not a mirage. I found my people there. Grapes in the wilderness. What a tie-in. When we think of him saying, like the first fruits of the fig tree, I'm coming to my people. I'm calling people, the first disciples. This right here is the first account of somebody actually becoming a Christian and saying and confessing Jesus for who he is, at least in John's gospel. And it's exciting. Jesus is coming to seek and save those who are lost. He's finding those figs. Someone, one of Paula's customers gave her, say gave us, gave her a fig tree. And it's not a fig tree like that grows that you'd have to be Tom Thumb to lay under our little fig tree because it's just a little one in a plant, and we roll it in and the, into the garage and, and in the wintertime and put it out in the summer. But boy, there was something about Paula coming in one day, a little napkin, and, and there's a little piece of fruit or something. I'm like, what's this? Let's just try it. It's the fig. The fig tree produced a fig. And, and there was something about looking at that fig tree. And I'm looking at the branches now when I sit in our little chair, and I say, oh, there might be some figs this year. Um, 
Jesus said this. He said, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on a fig tree at its season, I found your fathers. That's God and Hosea. And here is Jesus finding his people. Found you, didn't he, Christian? Found you. Think about that. So at this point in the conversation with Jesus, as Nathaniel realized that Jesus had a supernatural knowledge of his character, of his um, of, of seeing him under that fig tree, what did he do? Well, he was overwhelmed. He answered in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are. And I would just say this. Get in the vicinity of Jesus. Get people into the vicinity of Jesus. Uh, get them. Say, come and see. Let Jesus do Jesus' work in their life. Uh, you don't have to be a, 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 you know, the world's greatest apologist and read all these things and know all this and have a mathematical mind to remember this and that and win an argument and make, convince them. You can't do that anyway. Jesus is the one. A good thing is just to say, listen, come and see. Come and see. We found him. Hey, friend, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't rest. I had to tell you because you're my friend. We found him. You're going to be excited about this. And the initial skepticism. Can anything good come? Just come and see. Just come and see. goes beyond the yada, yada, yada cliche of much of modern American evangelicalism. When he said, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. That's our message. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the king of Israel. It's the desired response and it's the best response. So what is in store for those? We see Jesus as the leader. Jesus deciding this. Jesus leading the pack. Jesus in charge of events. We see some responses to Jesus. And then we see Jesus in a one-on-one -on -one relationship, convincing, speaking, and bringing people to himself. And what's interesting is this. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? And people say that question mark uh, there in, in some of our translations, it's not like a question mark, like a, um, a challenging thing. It might not even need to be there. Uh, what, what he's saying is, listen, I understand, you, I understand your initial reaction with me. When you finally see me for who I am, I understand that. But he says, I'm going to tell you something. You will see greater things than these. This is just the start, Nathaniel. You came to me. Philip went and got you. You came to me. Uh, all of a sudden, you're the one making the declaration of who I am, the son of God, the, the, the king of Israel. But I'm going to tell you, you're going to see more than this. And so our final point, what's in store for those who respond positively to Jesus' leadership? And this should be very interesting because if you're a Christian, uh, I could say what's in store for you, Christian. What's in store for the Christian? He said, you'll see greater things than these. And then in verse 51, he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, 
you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I told you about poor Jessica, who I started with the wrong thing. So I got her her transcript on Friday night about midnight. And the conclusion of this, I went with, you know, just the first thing. And if you've read your Bibles, the heavens open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the first thing you think, and if it is the first thing you think, it's good because it means you're learning your Bible. I think of, and a lot of people think, and maybe it's even in some study notes in some Bibles, Jacob uh, laying there, and the Jacob's ladder, and the angels coming up and down. And so we think angels coming up and down, angels coming up and down. That's not what's going on. So I kind of ended Friday night with an open-ended. I was going to put a couple paragraphs on the end after I prayed and thought about it and lived through it. And this morning I said, here's the new one, Jessica. The last four paragraphs are totally changed. Because as I've looked and read and thought about this, it's not the direct tie-in to Jacob. Um, uh, Here's what Jesus is saying. What's in store to those who respond positively to Jesus' leadership, verses 50 and 51? Answer, in addition to the great thrill of being face-to-face with the Son of God, who's the King of Israel, traveling with him, he is going to see even more in action the tie-in of Jesus Christ with heaven, with angels here on earth walking. He's going to see, he's going to see that Jesus is more than King David, for instance, who God had his hand on. He's going to see angelic intervention. He's going to see heaven uh, interacting, and he's going to see Jesus even more as he walks and and observes Jesus' life, he's going to see Jesus even more deeply and truly as the Son of God, and his faith is going to grow, and he's going to see things spiritually that he had not seen to that point. Think of this. Uh, Nathaniel's beginning to see him for who he is. He's on track, but there's more. Somebody wrote this in a commentary. Angels are associated with the Son of Man nine other times in the Gospels and are viewed on at least three different occasions as Jesus' actual or potential protectors during his sojourn on earth. Think of angels as messengers of God, as servants of God, in charge of this life and looking and being sent by God. Uh, What do we have? Angels at the birth announcement. Here's an angel coming and saying, Jesus is coming. Here's angels in the sky saying, Jesus has arrived. Go see him. Here's uh, angels ministering to Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness. Here's angels at the cross where he could have, had he wanted, called 10,000 of them and and, and ended the story right there uh, with us on our way to hell. He could have. That's biblical. It says that. Here's angels announcing the resurrection. Here's angels explaining the ascension. And who's going to be with him when he comes back? All those angels. He's saying, Nathaniel... You're a pretty good religious guy. You're a sinner in need of a savior. You see me now, but you're going to see there is something spiritual. It's akin to in uh, uh, the passage we had in 2 Kings, where the, Elisha said, God showed this servant, and the servant op- eyes were open, and he saw the skies filled with these chariots of fire. Um, if you're a Christian, 
you will start to think and you will see spiritual things. And the spiritual will become more real to you than this temporary physical stuff. I think it was a men's group Wednesday, maybe. I was talking about my old missions professor, Paul Long, old West Virginia cowboy. He had like four heart attacks. They brought him in just to talk about missions. Uh, he's got a good book. He was in the Congo, and then it got, it got too hot there. His family was in, in danger. There was all the Belgian Congo stuff. He went to Brazil. But he was the, he was the old guy who uh, he would go into the jungles in the Amazon, and he would get there ahead of the electricity. By the time the, he says, by the time the electricity rolled in, it was time for me to push on in. Uh, but he said, listen, guys. He said, I could sit here at Reformed Theological Seminary, and I could tell you things that I know to be true of God spiritually at work and things going on, and they would have to fire me because it doesn't fit our nice, tidy little Reformed narrative. There is something going on. There is spirituality, and it's easy enough for me, and maybe it's that way for you, to just retreat into the facts and figures and talk about and not uh, talk about the, the, the details and, the, and the, the theological propositions and not see him at work. Someone had ripped us, ripped us youth pastors apart a little bit. They thought they were going to be better because we were going to go be youth pastors and they were going to be you know, nice pastors in, in, in pulpits of good con- congregations. And so some of us were feeling a little bad about that. Paul Long knew nothing about that, but he said, I want everyone who's been a youth pastor or who will be a youth minister, possibly, to stand up. And so we stood up. <laughs> the, B, the B students, the A students sat down, <laughs> the theologian, the B students stood up, and, and he said, I want to tell you something. He said, what you're going to see in this country, he said, you guys are the ones that are going to see the spiritual stuff, because you're going to do what so many missionaries did in taking back that world that had been the devil's turf, uh, from the devil, and we saw the witch doctors, and we saw the things. He said, you can go get your nice, tidy job, or you can see God at work, and you can see angels and demons, and you can see uh, that type of spiritual warfare going on if your eyes are open to it. That's the kind of thing that Jesus said to Nathaniel. You're going to see more than just me here who saw you under the fig tree you're going to see angels ascending and descending from heaven. You're going to see something cosmic or epic or whatever our words are these days. Uh, that, is my, that is my hope for Christ the Shepherd Church. As things get more and more pushy and pushy and pushy on Christians, you can't just be a you know, good Christian here. Paul and I had a neighbor one time. He said, he said, uh, Catholic guy, uh, but he was a thinker about religion and stuff. He says, we don't allow good Christians in our house. And we're like, what do you mean good Christians? We don't, because down south he got so tired of people saying, we're good Christians, we're good Christians, we're good Christians. And he rightly said, there's no such thing as a good Christian in the way you're describing yourself. Um, listen, as more and more walls uh, close in, as there's more and more hostility, as there's less and less acceptance of people who are weirdos, who believe that 
God actually did send Jesus in the form of a human, uh, fully God, fully man to die for our sins, as that gets more and more laughed out, as more and more we stand for what the Bible says in the face of a world that's practicing things and pushing things that are opposite, um, I, hope we, I hope we're able to, to be like Nathaniel and get, and get to see all this spiritual activity, see people get saved dramatically, uh, see things that we say only God could have done that. That's what he's saying to them. Conclude. I just put two. Two application conclusion points. The first one is this. This is for the as yet non-Christian. And I'm just going to say, if you're not a Christian yet, and I, I, I just want, I want to keep putting that word yet in there because I want to be hopeful and I'm going to be praying for people who aren't and, uh, and we'll see what God's going to do. But for the as yet non-Christian, you would be wise to take another look at Jesus. Don't be quick to dismiss him, and don't even throw him into the category of possible saviors. First, I'm going to try money. First, I'm going to try this. Maybe if those things don't work out, I'll try Jesus. Then maybe if that doesn't work out, I'll try a, 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 a new husband or new wife or a person, or I'll try a political party, or I'll try this. Uh, don't throw Jesus into that category of potential saviors that you, you might try one day. Uh, take a look at him. Take a look at who he is and what he said and what he did. And I would say with scripture, now is the day of salvation. Get saved. Respond to his call. Secondly, for the ones like Nathaniel, that's us, who confess him to be who he is, the Lord, I'm saying, hang on to your hat. There's more to come. There is something spiritual ready, and it's going on. And you know that Jesus is more than just a one-dimensional figure. You know it, but we don't know what we will see. Pray for us to be able to see God's clear work using frail, fragile people like us. And we'll walk with him. We'll see him. The good we get to experience as we walk with him the rest of our earthly days. And then we get to go to heaven. Wow. What a good life you have, Nathaniel. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the book of John. Thank you that uh, you sent this one along about 20 years or so after the other gospels were written. Uh, just to um, help amplify and work with those voices to be a, another uh, voice of truth uh, here. And we thank you that uh, this was written for us to see uh, Jesus and who Jesus is. Help us as a church. Help us as individuals, as Christians in our families. Some of us live within families where just about everybody's a believer and uh, we still have to live for you. Some of us live maybe as the only one in our circle who are believers. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we get to see you, and we thank you for spiritual growth, and we thank you that uh, we get to be old. We can look back and see what you've done uh, in us, through us, around us, and that it points to you. We thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. In his name we pray. Amen.